Welcome to Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast. I am your host, Mohammed Ismail. I am a cloud accounting expert and a business advisor to dental and medical professionals. My firm, Shift Accounting, has helped our clients reach their financial goals. How do we do this? We offer intuitive solutions through bookkeeping services and business consultancy. Our monthly management reports provide valuable financial insights. These insights can help you improve your profitability and help you achieve your goals sooner. Our goal for the Grow Your Dental Practice podcast is to provide you with valuable resources to help you build, manage, and grow your dental practice. I interview experts in a variety of areas, whether you're just thinking about starting your own dental practice or you're already well on your way. There is something for everyone. Enjoy the show. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to another episode on the Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. November is upon us, and this is oftentimes a great opportunity to reflect on how far we have come as we wrap up another year. With that in mind, the opportunity to learn, gather resources, and find ways to strengthen your practice as you take on new goals, challenges, is something that should be always on top of mind. That's why we have invited Gary Solomon from Black Talent Security to speak to us today about protecting your dental practice against cybersecurity attacks. Gary has a unique background as a database developer and working with law enforcement for for 15 years. At 30 years old, he built and sold his first technology business, which deployed one of the first cloud-based healthcare systems. He's a thought leader, a speaker, and a writer, and he leads Black Talent Security which specialized in cybersecurity for dental practices and securing over 15,000 devices in the dental space. They work with hundreds of practices and their IT companies to help harden networks to prevent ransomware attacks and data breaches. Gary, welcome to the show. Lately in the news, we have heard about some major companies and critical infrastructure or supply chains such as oil and gas pipelines or meat processing plants were victims of ransomware attacks. If major companies with resources, big budgets, are falling victims to cyber attacks, is it, is it safe to say dental and medical practices are potential targets? And if so, how vulnerable well, are Well, thanks so much for having me on your show. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, so I think what we typically see is these news stories of these huge multi-billion dollar companies being hit. But how often do we hear about small businesses like dental and medical practices being impacted? I think the reality is way more small, medium businesses are actually hit by ransomware attacks than the large ones. They just don't typically make it you know, to the news unless it's some massive systemic hit where they hit hundreds and hundreds of practices in one strike, which we've seen in the past. Um, the, the issue really here is that the hackers do not care whether they strike a small dental practice or a multi-billion dollar company. You know, one of the things that I like to say is a hit's a hit. And the hackers actually know that a strike against a healthcare entity is actually a really good hit because there's a very high likelihood that the healthcare entity is going to pay. Because what dental medical practice is going to want all of their patient data published on the dark web simply because they refuse to pay the ransom. Um, in terms of you know, the, the number of attacks, I would argue that way more small, medium uh, practices are being hit than the large ones because they typically don't have the correct things in place to protect themselves from an attack. Or more likely, they think they have the right things in place to protect themselves. And they find out, unfortunately, the hard way that all of their patient data is encrypted with ransomware. You know, The hackers are demanding this huge sum of money to decrypt the data and, and uh, stop the selling, auctioning is really what it's called, of, of their data on the dark web. Interesting. So, you know, I think let's start with the basics. What is ransom, you know, attack? Sure. So a ransomware attack typically occurs in one of two ways. The first is a direct attack against the network where hackers are constantly scanning the firewall devices that are exposed to the internet, like computers, 
IoT devices. They may even be able to get in through an application you're running. And then what they do is they find these vulnerabilities on these devices, they exploit them, and basically it opens up a gateway and provides an entry point into your network. And once they're sitting on a server or a workstation, they then run tools to find the other devices on the network that they can exploit with the ultimate goal of trying to get to the server. And once they get onto the network and potentially get to the server, they will then drop their tools, their hacking tools on the network. And typically one of those tools is the ransomware code. And then they literally sit there and kind of like double click on their ransomware code. It runs just like you were installing a program. And within minutes, it spreads laterally or across the network to almost all the machines, in many cases, 100%. And then it starts encrypting or locking all of the files on the network. So sometimes in a matter of minutes, the hackers will literally encrypt every single record on your system. So you're talking you know, panoramic images, periapical, CEPHs, photographs, driver's licenses, insurance cards, um, EOBs, you get the idea and all your practice management software, right? So basically they've, they've taken your entire system, locked it, and you can kind of see the files there, but when you try and open them, you can't because they're encrypted with ransomware, All right? So that's one way you can get it. The second way is through social engineering. Um, so examples of social engineering may be phishing, where you receive an email that looks like it's coming from Amazon or Microsoft or Google, and it's prompting you to do something. Um, or you receive an email maybe from your colleague down the street and it's a referral and it looks like a Panorex or it looks like a referral letter and you click on it and it's actually the hacker's executable code. And because you fell for this scam, you literally install the ransomware code for the hackers on your system. Um, so that's, that's typically the way you get ransomware on your system. That's really what ransomware does. Um, in terms of recovery, the first thing you should know is it's basically impossible to decrypt the files on your own. Even if you call a government agency and say, hey, we got hit with ransomware, I'm sure you have some special agent that can come in and run some special code on my system and get all my files back. It doesn't exist, right? Even these multi-million dollar supercomputers can't crack the ransomware code. It would take somewhere around 100 to 1,000 years to break the code. That's why this is so effective. Um, so. How do you get out of ransomware? How do you get out of this debacle? Well, the reality is most healthcare entities, I will say based on our experience, and we've dealt with hundreds of these cases, is that 90% of the healthcare entities will be forced to pay the ransom. Now, I know a lot of your listeners are like, what? That's not possible. How can that happen, right? I'll have a backup. Everything will be fine. Well, the thing that everyone needs to understand is this. It's very simple. 75% of the time, when the hackers get on the network, they will persist on your network for weeks. And during that period of time, they will figure out how you operate, where you store your backups, how you backup. They'll even crack your passwords to your backup solutions. And then you know what they do? They either encrypt all of your backups with ransomware, or more likely, they erase all of your data just prior to encrypting your data with ransomware. Um, the second part of the story is the theft right? The exfiltration of this data. So during this three week period where they're, where they've gained persistence on the network, they're literally going to offload every single database on your network, all your x-rays, all of your attachments, and they will steal hundred percent of your data. So the reason they're doing this is very simple. Let's just say for argument's sake, you do have a valid backup. Maybe you took a backup drive home with you that they couldn't touch. Now they're going to say to you, Hey, that's cool. You don't want to pay me the ransom hit this link and I'm going to show you 10% of all your patient records on the dark web. I'll show you your photographs, your EOBs, your driver's licenses, you know, your, your clinical records. And if you don't want to pay, I'm going to auction all of this data off. And now from a compliance and a legal standpoint, as a practitioner, you have a major issue, right? So you're going to most likely pay the ransom. So that's, that's kind of the state of where we are right now in, in terms of how ransomware is delivered. Um, you know, the, the methodologies of the hackers, and then obviously, you know, the ramifications of, of this type of attack. Gary, uh, I mean, this is already very scary and depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Take your morning shot, right? Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, the conversations I have with, you know, uh, dentists that 
they work with a fantastic you know IT company the backups are working they have a firewall uh, you know computers maybe you know kind of updated so are they protected yeah so I think this is really the number one problem here um, I think so many practitioners don't truly understand that there is a huge differential between what IT companies can provide and what cybersecurity companies provide. They're very, very different. Uh, the best analogy I can give you is the one in healthcare. Let's just say you think you have a problem with your heart. You're not feeling so well, so you go to your primary care physician. And the primary care physician lays you down on the table and says, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to hook you up to an EKG. I'm going to listen to your heart. And then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. So doctor lays you on the table, right? Hooks you up to the EKG, listens to your heart and says, oh, wow, listen, we've got a major problem here. But don't worry. I just built a state-of-the-art, right, surgical center right next door. Just go ahead and kind of let's walk over there. I'll split your chest open and we'll do a triple bypass right here. And you're like, What? Right. You throw your clothes on and you run out because, you know, your primary care physician isn't trained on, you know, open heart surgery. You're going to go to a cardiothoracic surgeon. This is the biggest problem we see in the information technology space. Your IT folks are great at keeping your computers up and running, patching them, providing antivirus and a firewall. But in the end, I've never, ever seen and I've been doing this for over four years now ever seen an IT company that's properly equipped to prevent these types of attacks that we're talking about. But as the doctor, you assume that this guy, and we'll call him Dave, right? Dave, the IT guy has been great. He fixes my stuff. He's really responsive. He's smart with computers. It's not the same. It's a totally different type of uh, knowledge and tool sets uh, than, you know, that a cyber company has versus an, an IT company. So let me give you an example. I would say 100% of the cyber attacks we've dealt with, all these practices have had Dave, the IT guy, they've had a firewall, and they've had antivirus software. And I just everyone, I want everyone to think about this critically for a second. Do you really believe that um, larger companies don't have firewalls and antivirus software? Do you believe that most practices don't have a firewall and antivirus software? Yet tens of thousands of, of these healthcare entities and, and businesses are getting slammed with these attacks. And, and one of the things that everyone needs to know is as part of what I do, I do uh, recovery, meaning practices call us and said, hey, I got your name. We got hit with a ransomware attack. We need your help to recover. And part of the recovery effort is to do a forensics investigation, which basically means we act almost like, you know, a digital detective and understand exactly how these hackers broke in, the types of tools they used the uh, damage that they've done to the machines, and then whether or not they access the data. And I will tell you, in a very high percentage of these cases, over 80% of the time, we find the computer's antivirus software and its defenses disabled, right? When the hackers get in, they know how the computer is programmed to fight back and they disable the defenses, right? So practitioners all over the country and world are saying, you know what, I got a firewall, I have an antivirus, my T guy said it's going to stop ransomware. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. It doesn't work, right? There is no piece of software or technology that stops all forms of ransomware, not even a majority of ransomware. And I think a lot of the doctors are kind of lured into this false sense of security because Dave, the IT guy says, well, this is the next gen firewall. This is the next generation antivirus software. You're fine, doctor. Oh, and have you ever had an issue before? And the doctor's like, no, I have it. And then He's, then Dave's like, oh, well, I also have all your data backed up in the cloud, so don't worry about it. But just think about all those statements that I just made and the fact that in most cases, it doesn't apply, right? The hackers will find the data, destroy it. They will steal the data. So what I say is, is your firewall going to stop the theft of all your patient data? Nah, no chance. Is your antivirus software going to stop the theft of your data? Zero chance. It's not designed to do that, right? And, and we all want to hear what we want to hear. And when we get that answer that we ask, right? And a lot of your listeners will do it. They'll, they'll go to Dave and be like, hey, I just started this podcast. Am I good you know, with ransomware? And Dave's like, yeah, I got you. And they will continue on down their current path. What I'm here to tell you is you got to think differently, right? Because the impact of these attacks is, and we'll talk about this, is really, really dramatic for, for practice. 
Um, so you got to work with experts. I mean, I mean let's, let's probably, I, 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 I do want to, you know, there's two questions that I, right. that, I, that I have is, is this a new problem? I mean, you know, now with 2021, right. you know, was this a problem that existed five years ago to this extent? Nowhere, ne- nowhere near the extent that we see it now. I mean, if you if you timeline this thing out, ransomware's probably been around for you know mainstream six seven years. Uh, initially, what they would do is they hit one machine or one server in a in a practice, they would ask for like five hundred bucks, right? It was nothing, and then as we progressed, you know, over the years, it would move to all right, let's hit a couple machines and maybe ask for, you know, $5,000. They weren't really stealing data. Then really within the last 12 months, and I was warning about this uh, about 18 months ago based on intelligence we were getting, that the hackers were going to move to this methodology of stealing the data. And lo and behold, you know, within the last 12 months, we've seen the ransom payments skyrocket, right? The average dental practice, a small practice with say 12 computers, they're going to have their data stolen 75% of the time. And the ransom demand is going to be around 45 ish thousand dollars. All right. So we've seen this just for the ransom payment. Correct. $45,000 in Bitcoin. Right. So $45,000, right? Yeah. What, tell me what is the impact then? What is the full impact? If, if a practice gets Okay, so let's kind of walk through a timeline here uh, so everyone understands what's going on. Let's say it's Monday morning and you walk into your practice and at 9 a.m. you walk through the front door and one of your team members comes up to you and says, doctor, we got a major problem. There are red skull and crossbones on every single computer in our office. It says we've been hit with ransomware, All right? So that's that's the zero minute mark, right? That's when you first find out about it. Then what happens is, Typically, nothing functions, right? Your backups are are gone. Um, Your servers are all encrypted. Your workstations, you know, are all encrypted typically. And the computers don't normally work properly because they've been damaged so badly in this attack. Uh, Then what normally happens is uh, if you have insurance, you file insurance. The insurance company will hire uh, a digital forensics uh, uh, incident response company, i.e. a cyber firm that specializes in this. Um, That may take a day or two. Uh, typically, an attorney is also assigned. So, if you don't have insurance, you know, usually IT companies can't handle this. They don't. They don't understand the complexities of this. All right, but let's just say you do have insurance, and it's now your claim's been open, and it's the day two mark. So, at day two, you're still down. None of your systems function. No X-rays. No scheduling. No billing. No payroll. Nothing works. Literally, it's as if the computers aren't there. It's going to take the forensics firm about a a day uh, or so, depending on the size of your practice. Obviously, this is proportional, but it's going to take them a day or two to do what's called lay of the land, which basically is where the the cyber firm comes in and understands the scope and the depth of the attack, tries to figure out who the threat actors are, i.e. the hackers, and then starts communications with the hackers. Now, typically what happens here is the hackers have a dark web website Right, that's quote unquote hidden, and uh, our firm, for instance, would go to their dark web website and start interacting with the hackers, trying to figure out how much money do they want. You know, did they steal the the, the patient data, the practice data? Right. Then, uh, during this period of time, we're also doing evidence collection. Right. We're running through every single machine, collecting as much information as possible to try and determine a what happened, and b what did they do? Did they steal the data or not? Right. You're obviously dealing with criminals, so you can't always trust what they say. So during this, say we're at day three, day four period, um, the hackers are going to say, hey, I want $50,000. I want $500,000 if you're a large practice, for instance. And then we try and negotiate with them. We agree to a final price. And then either the insurance company or the practice will have to send us the equivalent cash right through a wire transfer. So let's just say it's $100,000. So the practitioner would send us $100,000. We would convert it to cryptocurrency, usually Bitcoin. And then we transfer the Bitcoin to the criminal's digital wallet. And then once they receive it within 24 to 48, maybe even 72 hours, they send us the keys 
to unlock all of these encrypted files. All right, so now we're usually around day five, okay, on average, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter, depends on how quickly money can flow. If this happens on a Saturday, you can't move wires around. What do you do? You know, you're kind of stuck. Typically, the, the money won't move until Monday. So you could technically be at day six or day seven if this occurs on, on a, say, on a, a Friday night. Um, once we... So five days and of, of, of no production. production plus an additional forty-five dollars to $100,000. Easily. This is yeah, significant. Yeah, so take your daily production. And what I'm going to tell you in a second is it's not five days. It's almost always 10 days. Almost every practice, regardless of the size, huh. the, regardless of the types of backups, computers, technology they have, they will be down on average for 10 days. All right, so 10 days of production. And, and why, why is that? Because once we get the keys back from the hackers, the decryption process takes a really long time in most cases. So the way these tools work is we get something from the hackers called a decryptor. This is a tool that they engineer that literally opens the file that they've encrypted, inserts their digital key, the key's turned, the file is unlocked, and then it closes that file and repeats that process sometimes millions of times. So what I want you to think about is, do you have, you know, do your listeners have digital imaging, like a digital pan, digital periapical, cephalometric, cone beam imaging, digital intraoral scanning, right, where they can take a digital impression. These types of devices create sometimes millions of files over the course of time. So this tool that the hackers give you, let's just say you have a cone beam machine and you've taken lots of X, uh, 3D images, it may have to unlock millions of files. This process can take days, sometimes three or four days, sometimes longer. We've seen the decryption process take five days and push the recovery into a three-week period. There's nothing anyone can do to speed it up. It's just the, the horsepower of the, the machines on site and how many files have been encrypted and the uh, effectiveness of their tool to decrypt the files. So then what happens? Well, all the machines are basically toast. Right? For the most part, the hacking tools, the encryption software has damaged the computers in many cases. The other problem is the hackers install back doors. So in most cases, the standard operating procedure for any type of healthcare entity is to format the hard drives on every computer and server and rebuild them from scratch. Right? They don't, the computers just don't work wow. right. Even after I mean, we run the decryption, the computers lock up, right? They don't boot properly. It's a disaster. And then you don't know if they've left malicious code, you know, to backdoor the system. So you literally wipe the slate clean. So then think about how long that takes. A workstation can take two to three hours to rebuild, right? Depending on the technology server can take 10 to 15 hours. Many practices have multiple servers, especially if they're, you know, multi-office, uh, multi-doctor, larger, right? Then you need to reinstall all your applications, you need to reconfigure them. You need to move the data back from the decrypted drive back to the server. It's a huge debacle. And no one really starts connecting these pieces until it happens to them. So if you then add up all these kind of dates we've been, uh, or days, I should say, that we've been talking about, this is how you get to 10 days very quickly. And, and in some cases, it's longer. And we've done recoveries that have been three weeks where the practice could not function at all, literally, for three weeks because of the complexity and the severity of the attack. Um, you know, we've also had situations where doctors didn't have enough money, they didn't have enough liquid cash, where they had to sell stocks, retirement accounts, get home equity lines, right? Enough money to be able to pay these hackers so their business can survive. This is a major disaster. What, what is gonna take to give practices firepower right. and protect themselves. Yeah, look, so as, as crazy and as you said, as scary as this is, the reality is 95% of all the attacks we've dealt with have been 100% preventable, right? And, and we have to change our mindset. I think that's the biggest thing that all the listeners have to understand is this concept of IT doing security is a recipe for failure. So how do we prevent this stuff? Well, at the beginning of our discussion, we talked about the two most common ways hackers break in through the social engineering, tricking the doctors and the employees to give up something or through a technical hack where the hackers scan the network and find these vulnerabilities. And what a lot of IT folks will say, well, that's, that's not really common. 
I'm going to tell you that's absolutely false, right? The hackers are now starting to be more technical hackers than social engineers. Why? Because they're realizing more and more people are becoming savvy and they're not as likely to fall for the Amazon scam or the Microsoft scam. So the hackers change their, their approach, right? And now they start, you know, nailing these networks harder and harder to find an entry point. So let's discuss how we can solve this problem because believe it or not, for, for small businesses, it's easier to secure a small environment with say 12 or 20 computers than it is for a large company with 20,000, right? Because of something called attack surface, all the different areas that these networks can be attacked. For, for a healthcare entity, the attack surface is usually pretty small. It's the people and the, the technical and maybe third parties. So let's break each one down. So from a people perspective, right? Social engineering, the way you beat that problem is through effective training, right? And effective training is defined as having a cybersecurity awareness training program, right? Not a, hey, let's sit down for 10 minutes over lunch and pizza and tell everyone not to click on links. That doesn't work, right? We all know that that that, that is completely ineffective. And I have doctors tell me all the time, well, I told my staff not to open anything. I'm like, ah, you know, that's a lie, right? Just let's be honest with one another right now. You know, your staff is going to websites they're not supposed to. How do you function as a practice? Do patients send you x-rays? Do your colleagues send you x-rays? If you're referral-based, they're sending you x-rays. You know your staff's opening this stuff. And they're like, okay, well, I didn't really think about that. Right? So you have to have a cybersecurity awareness training program in place. Um, typically, cyber firms have training platforms that provide education and, most importantly, empower the doctors and the team members to make good decisions. So what these training platforms do is they show you real world examples of different types of attack methodologies and samples of these attacks. And ultimately what it does is it creates awareness, right? It shows an employee that this email may not be what you think it is just because it says Amazon, right? Or Microsoft or, or, or Bank of you know, America or whatever it might be. That doesn't mean it's real, right? That phone call you receive to get your username and password may not be real, right? And uh, these training platforms provide methodologies to beat these types of scams. And they're really designed to be non-technical, right? Anyone can sit down and, and learn these techniques. It's not that you have to understand coding or, or cyber. You just have to have basically com good common sense. Um, they're also followed up with simulated phishing attacks. So, you know, cyber firms will send out these test emails to the doctor's employees to see if they're clicking on things that they shouldn't be or opening attachments. It's a very, very good methodology to validate the effectiveness of the training, all right? So this is a process that has to be ongoing. We all know education typically is ongoing. It's not a one and done type thing. So cybersecurity awareness training, very effective. Absolutely. The second part is how do we defeat these technical hacks? So there's a couple ways. We talked about the hacker scanning the network. If your firewall logs, its activity and you pull that firewall activity, you would be absolutely horrified, right? Your dental practice is probably getting pegged hundreds of times per day by the hackers, literally, right? The hackers can scan millions, like one hacker can scan millions of devices in a couple of hours. So there's thousands of them out there at least, and they're scanning these networks looking for vulnerable devices, vulnerable firewalls, you know, vulnerable software, things like that. And when their tools hit your network and find a vulnerability, a light goes off conceptually and says, hey, uh, here's a firewall. Here's a device with a vulnerability. Here's what it may be vulnerable to. Then what the hackers do is they say, all right, I know the vulnerability. And guess what? There's a tool, a hacking tool to crack that vulnerability and give them an entry into the network. So how do you beat that? Well, you have to know how you're vulnerable. So what cyber firms do is they run very sophisticated tools against the firewall. So they're basically in concept launching cyber attacks on a monthly basis against the firewall to see if it's going to hold up, right? Are there open doors and windows on that firewall that's gonna let someone enter? And if there are these open doors and windows, then remediation takes place, right? Where those doors and windows are locked. So that way now when the hacker scans that firewall, it shows, no vulnerabilities, and they move on to the next one, right? So 60% of the firewalls that we test in dental are not configured properly and are vulnerable. That's a crazy number. No one would want to play those odds. Right, so that's, that's you know, the technical aspect to the firewall. The next thing is 
all of the computers and devices on the inside of the network. I hear so many IT people say, well, who cares about what's on the inside of the network? Because if they can't get through my firewall, they're not going to touch my network. It's complete and utter garbage. I don't know what other words to use. It, it, it's a mis, you know, it's misinformation. Um, the problem here is some of these devices can potentially be exposed to the outside world. A lot of times software applications on these devices talk to the outside world. And what you can do now to identify these vulnerabilities on these computers is install very special software called vulnerability management software. It's not antivirus. It's a totally different type of technology. And what this software does is every six hours, it scans the computer and says, hey, are there any high risk vulnerabilities on here that could result in a breach? And then it reports that data back to a cyber firm. The cyber firm analyzes and says, all right, this is low, medium risk. We're going to put this on a monthly report. And then the IT resources are going to be given the report and the IT company is going to read it and understand what the risk is on that device. And then they'll follow the steps to fix that vulnerability or most likely vulnerabilities. And they're going to do it across all their machines. Now, this vulnerability management is really important for two reasons. The first I already explained, right? It could be a direct breach. But the other issue is if someone gets on the computer and there are vulnerabilities on it, when the hackers get on the computer and find these vulnerabilities, their hacking tools will then exploit them. And then this machine is literally a stepping stone to other machines on the network. So a lot of IT folks don't even understand this concept. Like, that one machine they get into can then launch attacks against all the other machines on the network. Or if you eliminate those vulnerabilities, like mm. we've been talking about on that machine, maybe the hacker is just boxed into that one computer and literally bounces off all the walls in that machine and can't go anywhere. Is that a great solution? Sure. If you can isolate someone and not allow them to get access to a server or data, you've kind of won, right? And this whole concept of being able to move laterally and freely through the network because of vulnerabilities is extremely common. When we do these forensics investigations, we'll literally watch right uh, a timeline showing how the hacker has moved from computer one to two to three to four, from the front desk to the doctor's computer to the server, and we'll track it within a fraction of a second. We'll see how they they uh, you know manage to get around the network. It's very, very eye-opening. And the reason they typically move through this network is because of these vulnerabilities. So the concept here is protect the firewall through vulnerability management, protect all the devices by uh, understanding where they're vulnerable and eliminating them. That's really important. So we've yet to come across really any IT company that does that, right? They're still doing the traditional firewall and antivirus. Uh, a penetration test. Um, I was on a panel with... Uh, uh, here in the U.S. with uh, the FBI and some hospitals. And one of the FBI agents said something really, really insightful. He said, you're going to get a penetration test in one of two ways, right? Either the hackers are going to do it for free and it's going to cost you a fortune because they're going to break in, or you're going to pay someone to do it. They're going to find the vulnerabilities and it's going to cost you a lot less. So a penetration test is when a cyber firm uh, allows its ethical hackers to try and attack your network and break in with very limited information. And if they're successful, then they sit down with the IT company and say, hey, here's how we broke in, guys. Here's how, what you need to do to lock the network down and be more secure. Gotta do a pen test, right? It's so, so important nowadays. If you're not doing it, the reality is someone's gonna do it for you and you're gonna be on the receiving end of that and it's not gonna be good. Um, so that's, that's typically how we describe wow. uh, the methodologies to lock these networks down. Uh, the concept here is, don't let anyone in your network. All right. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, you probably have some questions, but then after, you know, after we have a little discussion, let's talk about uh, some newer cutting edge artificial intelligence software that can be helpful as well. So what, I know I've been talking to a bunch, so what, uh, have any questions that I can No, no, no. I mean, keep, keep, keep going. I mean, I do have a lot of follow-up okay. questions, but I'm going to save them to the end because I mean, uh, this is very critical uh, stuff that you're saying, and I and I really want you know I want you to continue and okay. save the sure, no problem. To, to the end. All right. So the last thing that I would talk about um, from a technical perspective, and then we need to talk about what's called a security risk assessment. But from a technical perspective, there is some relatively new technology out there called extended detection and response. Think of this software as antivirus on steroids. Traditional antivirus software, which is 
probably what 95% of your audience has is definition based, which means it has a dictionary of hundreds of thousands of known threats. So if a doctor or team member tries to download something and this virus, this Trojan, this piece of malicious code is in the antivirus's dictionary, it will block it. However, if it's a new type of threat or the hackers change the name of it or they change the code a tiny bit, the antivirus software is going to inspect and be like, nah, I don't have this in my dictionary, let it go. And then it's going to hit your system. This is really, really old school thought. It doesn't work very well anyway. Yes, it'll, it'll stop known stuff, but it won't stop new and unknown stuff. So what companies have come out with is technology called XDR, this extended detection and response. It is typically based off of artificial intelligence, and it is uh, also based off of um, a technology that doesn't use definitions. So when you open up a piece of code, right, maybe you go to a website and the website tries to download something to your computer, or you click on a link, you open an attachment. What this XDR software does is it instantly analyzes the code using its artificial intelligence and makes a decision. It says, all right, based on my knowledge, right, of malicious code, I'm able to determine that this is safe. And if it's safe, it lets it go through. Or it analyzes the code and says, whoa, this has the fingerprint of malicious code. And it launches a counter strike or kills the code. And if necessary, even isolates that computer from the rest of the devices on the network. And obviously alerts the cyber firm monitoring that. So here's a type of technology that if put in place and as a quality product can actually potentially stop some of these attacks. Now, one thing I say, and I started my presentation this way, nothing's 100%. We've seen this technology beat, right? The hackers can go out and buy it themselves and they try and figure out how to beat it. But I can tell you in a lot of cases, it works really, really well. Now, um, the downside to this technology is it does not stop the theft of your patient data, right? It's not going to all of a sudden jump in. Did I lose you? All right. I lost you there. Gary, I okay. think, well, I, yeah, I, I did lose you. So, so yeah. All right, so go, one of the things ahead. that the software will not do is stop the theft of patient data. It doesn't have uh, the knowledge to say, hey, someone's copying all my patient records, my x-rays off this network. Um, so yes, it can block certain strains of ransomware. It can stop most forms of malicious code but we can't use it as our only line of defense. So uh, it's very, very important to have this. Um, some IT companies will provide it. Most times cyber firms provide it. It's actually pretty cost effective. It's not really that much more money than traditional antivirus software. So I want everyone to kind of start thinking about this and understand you know, that this is kind of where you need to be. You need to be <clears throat> using this XDR software. Um, so with that being said, the last thing that I really want to talk about is what's called a security risk assessment. Now, we can put all this cool technology in place, and that's great. But you know what happens most of the time? You think that your house is going to burn down over here, but your house burns down here and you put nothing in place to protect it. Mm -hmm. So this is what we see with a lot of IT companies is they will try and sell the doctor all this technology to protect from quote unquote ransomware, right? And this is all next gen state of the art stuff, but they don't have the technical knowledge. They don't have the experience to understand that they've left all these doors on the other side of the house open, right? Or the fire is kind of, you know, brewing over here and you're fighting a fire that doesn't exist. So these security risk assessments are highly effective. They're executed by a security engineer, someone with legit security credentials, not someone that thinks they're a security person. And what they're doing is they're asking about 125-ish questions. Now, that's typically what the average dental practice is going to need. If you're a larger group with lots of physical locations, your assessment could be hundreds of questions. But during this assessment, the security engineer will try and help you understand where you have risk. So they're going to ask you questions about how you back up, where you back up, what type of technology you're using, your firewalls, your antivirus software, 
you know, do you have what's called uh, third party risk? Who's logging into your system, right? All these remote connections coming into your office, your practice, high risk, right? If not configured properly, um, are you using secure email, right? So there's a lot of questions and really what it's designed to do is help the practitioner think and say, wow, you know, I, I never even knew that was a risk. I didn't even thought about that. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought we were doing the right thing, but clearly we're not. And many of the items uh, that are gathered from this investigation, right? This not really investigation assessment, I should say. Um, these items can then be translated into common terms by our engineers and say, hey, listen, instead of backing up this way, I want you to go out to a store and I want you to buy this type of hard drive. I want you to put encryption on it. I want you to back up this way. Or instead of using this cloud backup solution, maybe think about using this one. And this is all done independently, right? This is not something that the cyber firm is going to try and sell you. Most cyber firms don't sell anything, right? We don't sell uh, products. But what we're trying to do is help you understand that you have risk and maybe just shifting the way you do things a little bit. And maybe it doesn't even cost you anything. is highly effective, right? So these security risk assessments are really, really important. And these have to be done by a third party, right? The concept of having your IT company uh, assess the, the security of the firewall and the computers and doing the security risk assessment, it doesn't work, right? They can't assess their own work. And one of the things that I do, I lecture, you know, all over the country and, and, and uh, some, a lot of times these webinars are done worldwide that, that I do. What I'll say to the audience is, is this, how many of you have sat down with your IT company where the IT company has come in and said, hey, Dr. Smith, listen, we ran some tests on your network and we found all these problems with our network. You know, it's not in, it's not in great shape. And here are the things we suggest you do. Who's ever done that? I, I, I think in four years, I've had two hands out of right. about 15,000 right. people that I've lectured to, right? Or they misunderstood what they were getting. It doesn't exist, right? The IT companies aren't going to come up and come, come to you and say, hey, we stink, right? We're, we're, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So these assessments, these technical vulnerability tests, these pen tests, the industry standard and the proper way to do this is having a third party do it, not your IT resources. Right. Gary, here's kind of what I'm hearing is, you know, every clinic needs, you know, their IT company to provide the IT support, the network infrastructure, but it's not a comprehensive solution. Nowadays, the risks or the game have changed and you need your IT company and you need, you know, a security firm. Right. So what budget should we be looking at? Yeah, so I think you nailed it. This, this first of all, is a collaboration, right? You have to understand this is the cost of doing business. If you have data on your network, you, you ha- you're responsible for protecting it. Um, so it's a combination of the IT company playing a critical role, the cyber firm, and then the doctors and the employees being part of this solution as well. Um, so to answer your question directly, Look, if you budgeted four to 500 bucks a month uh, for, for uh, average practice for security uh, from a cyber firm, I, I think that's an extremely realistic number. You know, that would give you vulnerability management of the firewall, the computers, training, a pen test, the security risk assessment, right? All these things are, are basically, I'll say it, required in order to be secure. If you're missing any pieces of, those, of that puzzle, you're not going to have security. Um, so, you know, five-ish thousand dollars a year would, would, would get you a really, really strong solution. And like I said, if these pieces of this puzzle were in place for almost all the practices we've dealt with that were breached, they wouldn't have had the breach. I mean, that's, that's how effective it is. So the way I like to say it is the minimum amount of money that a small practice is going to get away spending on a cyber attack is about $170,000 all in the downtime, legal fees, ransomware, wow. you're going to write a check for 170 grand. If you're a specialist or you're multi-doctor, multi-office, it's going to approach a quarter of a mil. And this is, this is our numbers based on all of these attacks we've done. So to, to, to the budget, you know, five-ish thousand dollars to prevent this is, is very, very affordable. That's, that's a small it investment. It, re- it really is. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do have follow-up questions on, you know, uh, the stuff you, you presented today. And, you know, one of the things as, as you were speaking, you know, are, are people, you know, so you, you, you transfer money to criminals 
with the hope that they give you back a key. I mean, is there any guarantees in that process? Yeah, so this is, this is the million dollar <laughs> question, right? So yeah, look, it's crazy. We're dealing with criminals. Um, I have 17 years of law enforcement experience. And, and I think the best analogy I can give you that makes sense is this. Let's just say your house gets broken into, right? And you see the moving van in front of your house and you call the police. The police show up and you say, hey, go arrest those guys. They're, they're stealing everything from my house. They filled up an entire trailer of my stuff. And I'm like, all right, hold on a second. Let me go talk to them. So I walk up your driveway. I'm like, hey, who's in charge? And the guy's like, I'm in charge. I'm like, all right, how much do I need to pay you to put all of these belongings back into their garage? And they're like, yeah, I need $75,000. So then I walk back to you and I say, hey, um, I need you to send me $75,000. And the guys will not put the stuff back in your house, but they'll put it back in your garage for you. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? Like, go out and arrest them. Like, that, that's not right. <laughs> so then, then I explain to you, well, it doesn't work that way. So you give me the police officer 75 grand, and then I convert it to Bitcoin, pay these guys, and they basically just take all your stuff and shove it in your garage. And then we walk in your house and your walls are destroyed, your floors are destroyed, right? Your TV smashed, but most of your belongings are in your garage. And now we got to put everything back together. Conceptually, that's exactly what happens in these types of attacks. But to really answer your question, um, we've had tremendously good luck. We, we've had 100% success rate with uh, the recovery of the data. These criminals, which is what they are, do kind of have a code of ethics per se, if that's even possible. I know it sounds ridiculous that I just made that statement, <laughs> but they know that they have a reputation. And the reality is if, if someone pays them and they don't turn the keys over, people will go online, post in blogs, oh, we paid ABC Hacking Group $100,000 and they ne never gave us our keys, don't ever pay them. And this is what happened years ago where they mm. just take the money and not turn the keys over. And those operations quickly went out of business because of this reputational damage that they had. So our experience has been that they, they turn the, the keys over. Um, some of the challenges we've had is significant delays, like we'll pay them and then we, they'll go radio silent on us for a couple of days and then the keys magically show up. And obviously during that period of time is tremendous stress for all parties involved. They, they think they may have just lost hundred grand. Absolutely. We think that the client may not get their data back. It's, it's rough for everyone. Uh, we've seen some cases where the hackers have turned over um, five out of the 10 keys and the five keys work and five keys don't. We have to go back to them and they say, well, listen, the boss says we need some more money from you guys. We need another 25,000 for the remaining five keys. And the practice has to then pay a little bit more money, not a little, pay more money. And they give us the additional five keys and the data is mm -hmm. unlocked. So there are some games that they play. Uh, un unfortunately, we've also had situations where the hackers give us the keys and they don't work properly. They're files that haven't been decrypted. And then we go back, tell them their keys don't work. And typically they will then fix the keys and send them back to us and we unlock the files. And we talked about this two-week window. These are all the things that can occur during this two-week window that sometimes extend that period. If we have to go back and forth with them multiple times, all right, you could add three, four, five days of just you know conversations going back and forth because some of these groups that are smaller, they sleep, right? They may have five, 10 guys, um, but they sleep and we'll hit them on the dark web and they won't respond for seven or eight hours until they wake up. Um, so you sometimes lose, you know, almost half a day or a full day, depending on the cycle. But our, our experience has been that uh, we've seen some cases where during the encryption process, uh, the ransomware code has damaged some files like DICOM images we've seen damaged during the encryption process. So we've seen some practices in very, very rare circumstances have data damage that was unrecoverable. So, but that's, that's typically, typically what we that, see. That's a complete nightmare. I mean, you talked about vulnerability and uh, I can't help to stop thinking about, okay, you know, we talked about servers, we talked about computers, but what other, you know, what about other devices that are in the network? So, I mean, uh, the staff cell phones, for example, um, and, it, and maybe uh, a smart thermostat. Yeah. I, I mean, is that, are these devices at a risk to a practice? They are. So, the phones we don't worry too much about. And what I would recommend as, as a best practice for everyone is have your IT guy set up two networks. 
One is a guest network and one is the business network. And any device that is not owned by the practice, such as these cell phones, tablets, um, and even your smart devices, like a smart thermostat, a smart TV, put them on the guest network. So these networks are actually segregated. So this is the guest network. This is the business network. They have no way of communicating with one another. So that way, if someone's cell phone has something malicious on it, or a patient connects with a laptop from the waiting room and it's got malicious code on it, it's not going to spread to your business network. But these IoT devices, these Internet of Things, these, these smart devices that a lot of people have in their homes and a lot of people have in their offices are risky, right? They, they often don't, don't have much or any security on them. They have default usernames and passwords, right? And, and these can be used as launching uh, pads to attack other devices. So one of the most famous stories, and if you want to read the whole story, we're not going to talk about it now, is a cyber attack on a casino in Las Vegas, where the hackers exposed a thermostat in a fish tank, okay, that was internet connected. They used the operating system on that thermostat to attack the network and basically shut it down for days. All right, so we talked about these stepping stones or these launching points. That's the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Or the Target department stores, right, where the Target got was involved in a massive breach. That started with a heating and ventilation control device, HVAC control, right? So we, you know, one of the things we have to do is we have to think differently. We mentioned the word attack surface. We mentioned the word uh, or the phrase security risk assessment. These types of um, uh, checks, checks and balances and discussions are what we need to do. Because if we find out, hey, well, listen, I got all these smart devices on my network, our security guys will do a quick background check and be like, hold on, we got, we got a problem here with those types of devices. There's, there's a threat out there against them. Security cameras, telephones, thermostats, these are all risky devices. So the bottom line is anything that's not owned by the practice goes on the guest network. All the computers that the practice owns and secures goes on the business network. And that's, it's called network segmentation. That's a good way of mitigating risk. Very interesting. Gary, you have brought uh, a lot of insight into this topic. Uh, I mean, this was really, uh, in, in my opinion, is a wake up call to take security very seriously. I, I, I do appreciate this insight and information today. If anyone uh, wants to get in touch with you or say hi, what would be the best way to uh, get in touch sure. with you? Sure. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, you can visit us on our website, Black talonsecurity.com and talon is t-a-l-o-n uh all our contact information is on there as well but i am me through linkedin that's that's usually the best way to to hit me up perfect well thank You're you very, very much pleasure being on your show thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed this episode please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting app if you'd like to learn more about shift accounting visit us at www.shiftact.com or you can reach out to me directly at Mohammed M-O-H-A-M-E-D, at shiftact.com.